You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. The passage of the week comes out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so that's what I'm going to be preaching on this evening. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And the title of the sermon is Go and Do Likewise. Let's look at our parable. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I'm going to read the first verse. And this is the one place where I'm going to pause. I have to pause after this first verse and say a few things. So let's look at verse 25. And that's where I'm going to pause. Uh, It says, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher or rabbi, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's pause there. The vast majority of Jewish people in Jesus' day believed that at the end of the age, at the end of human history, that God himself was going to intervene and he was going to make everything right, just like that. All of the sin, the evil, the wickedness, the injustices, the immorality, all of the ugly things about human society and even the world itself, God was, was going to eradicate and God would make everything right, just like the environment of the Garden of Eden, the whole world would become like that once again. And and this would entail many things, but one of the things that was part of this hope that the Jewish people had is they hoped in a final resurrection. They believed that at once, all of the righteous dead would be raised to life and that they would now live and dwell eternally in God's kingdom. And so this is what this lawyer is asking about. He's saying, Jesus, I want to be part of that. Whenever God makes everything right, whenever, the, the, whenever God restores all and, and eradicates evil and he raises the righteous dead, what must I do to be part of that? What must I do to inherit life in the age to come? That's what he's asking. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not give us what we might call the standard American evangelical answer. If you were to ask most pastors, leaders, churches, Christians, what must I do to get eternal life? I want eternal life. How do I get eternal life? At least 95% of the time, you'll get an answer that sounds something like this. Well, just say this prayer with me and invite Jesus into your heart. Or you might be told something like what I was told when I was a kid. Well, you know, Ryan, it's as easy as A, B, C. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe Jesus died for your sins. C, confess Jesus as Lord. That's the formula. Boom. Congratulations, you have eternal life. I I have to point out to you that in this passage, Jesus doesn't say anything like that. Nor does he say anything like that in the entire Gospels. And rather than trying to correct Jesus' theology, 
I think perhaps we need to humble ourselves before Jesus and say, Jesus, is there something I need to unlearn so that I can relearn it the right way? All of Christian growth, I see it as a lifelong process of unlearning and relearning. If you want to grow, then you're going to be consistently unlearning and relearning. Whether you're unlearning ideas, unlearning habits, unlearning ways of relating to others, whatever it is, all of growth, all of spiritual progress is unlearning and relearning. And I think for the broader evangelical community, one of the things that perhaps needs to be unlearned is how we understand salvation and how it works. That salvation for Jesus and the New Testament is not just simply something that changes the status of my afterlife destination, though that is true. Listen, salvation is an invitation right now into a new way of being human, a new way of living, a new way right now of orienting ourselves to God, love, loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is what Jesus wants for us. This is the kind of abundant life Jesus wants to produce in us right now. Because watch this. That's the kind of life that will continue on in the age to come. Now, when Jesus returns and the age to come arrives or, or, it's, or it's fully manifested, that, that way of living is going to be perfected and refined in us. But it begins now. Eternal life is not something I'm handed when I die. It's something that the Holy Spirit begins to cultivate in me right now. Does that make sense? Now, if this is new to you, number one, you probably haven't been coming to Village Church very long because I emphasize this a lot. But secondly, I just want to suggest to you, I want to invite you into a humble posture to sit at the feet of your rabbi Jesus and say, Jesus, teach me. And I think that this parable is one of many passages that can be instructive for us. All right? <laughs> uh, let's, let's read the whole passage now. Let's read the whole parable. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. 
Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, Jesus was a master storyteller. It's the primary way Jesus taught. Very rarely does Jesus ever teach in just plain prosaic language. He certainly never teaches in the way that teaching is often done in classrooms today, where it's all about, here, let me give you the the fill-in-the-blank answer. Jesus most often preached through parables. Poetically, he taught through telling stories. And rather than giving people black and white, fill-in-the-blank answers, he invited them into a question, into a reflection, and, and he would have people's wheels turning. What does this mean? What's going on here? And he would leave them in that thought and reflection and allow space and time to do work. If you were to encounter the first century teaching ministry of Jesus, you would walk away feeling like you've just been part of a performance rather than having sat in a classroom. And here in this passage, we find maybe, I would say, one of the top three most famous parables that Jesus ever gave, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I would say probably the vast majority of people in Western civilization have some familiarity with this story or even just simply the terminology. You know, we we have, even in our secular society, we have things like Good Samaritan laws, you know. And so this, this parable has become quite famous. And yet I think the problem and the challenge of this parable is that it's become so famous that it's lost its meaning. It's so familiar to us that we, we really sometimes miss the whole point of the parable. And we think what Jesus is telling us is, is we need to go out and be good Samaritans. So like I'm driving down the road and I see somebody on the side of the road with a flat tire. So, you know, I pull over and I, I help the guy change his tire and I was a good Samaritan. Now, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a very Christian thing to do. You're sacrificing your time to help somebody else. I think we ought to be willing to do things like that. It's a good thing. But that's not really the lesson of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if we're going to learn the lesson that this parable is wanting to teach us, we've got to remember two things. There are two things we need to keep in mind. First, we need to remember that Jesus crafts this parable as a response to a question about how to inherit eternal life. I'll come back to that in a few moments. The second thing we need to remember is that the primary audience of this teaching is Jews. And without getting too deep into the history or anything like that, Jews and Samaritans despised one another. There was a lot of ethnic hostility, a lot of religious hostility. A Jew would see a Samaritan as a heretic. And there was a lot of historical reasons for their hatred as well. So Jews and Samaritans shared 
a common, deeply entrenched hostility towards one another. So remember those two things, and they'll help you in this parable. Now, the whole episode starts with a Jewish lawyer posing a question to Jesus. Now, when I say lawyer, don't think of a lawyer in in modern terms. Think of this man more like a Bible scholar. Because after all, for ancient Jews, where were all of their laws found? In the Bible, in the first five books, the Torah, right? So to be a lawyer was to be a Bible scholar. And that's who this man is. This is a man who has spent his life reading, studying, interpreting, and applying the Jewish law. And he's become an expert at it in everyone's eyes. And this Jewish Bible scholar, like so many others in his field, he has become deeply suspicious of this young upstart prophet from Nazareth. And in particular, He's suspicious of Jesus' practice of radical hospitality. Because Jesus, if you read in the Gospels, one of the scandalous things about him is that Jesus shares his table with anyone. Now, the the Bible scholars, the lawyers, the the teachers, they were very careful with who they sat with. Because in their minds, we got to keep a clear delineation here. There's the righteous and there's the unrighteous. There's the godly and the ungodly, and we need to be very careful about keeping that distinction. And so they would only eat with people that they perceived to be like them. Jesus, on the other hand, will eat with anyone. Anyone who invites him to his table, Jesus will share a table with. He'll eat with a a high and mighty religious person. He'll also eat with the scum of the earth tax collector. Anybody who will welcome Jesus to the table, Jesus will sit down and share a meal. And this Bible scholar is scandalized by that because in his mind, that's way too broad, way too generous, way too radical, way too inclusive. And so he decides that he's going to challenge Jesus to a public debate. And that's a very Jewish practice in their culture. And so the setting is, is this. Jesus is, is sitting down. He's teaching a crowd of people. Just like I'm, I'm doing tonight, uh, I'm teaching a crowd of people. And you're all sitting down. And everybody in Jesus' day would have been sitting down. Even the teacher, in their culture, the teacher would be sitting down to teach. Now, in our culture, for whatever reason, we make people stand up the whole time when they preach. And so I'm doing that now very, with a lot of resentment in my heart. I just want you to know. But everybody's sitting down, Jesus is teaching, and and somewhere or another there's a break in the teaching, and this Bible scholar stands up to ask a question. It's actually a sign of respect. And he addresses Jesus with a respectful title. He says, teacher or rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to participate in the age to come. When all of the righteous dead are raised to life, I want to be in that number. So what must I do to be part of that? And Jesus says, well, you're a Bible scholar. You've spent your whole life studying and interpreting the law. You tell me, sum it up, what does it say? And the lawyer says, well, it it boils down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now at this point so far, the lawyer and Jesus are in total agreement He's answered correctly. 
And Jesus says, you're exactly right. Do this and you will live. Or it can be translated, do this and you will be living. But all of this has just been a setup. Because now the lawyer is going to spring his trap. And he's got a follow-up question. And he says, yeah, Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And it's right here where he thinks he's going to be able to expose Jesus as being way too broad, way too generous, way too radical, and way too inclusive. Because here's how he thinks this conversation is going to go. I'm going to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is going to say, tell me what the law says. I'm going to say, it says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He's going to say, absolutely right. And then I'm going to say, but who is my neighbor? And right here is where he expects Jesus is going to say, everybody's your neighbor. Love everybody, love Romans, love Samaritans, love Gentiles, love tax collectors, love them all. And as soon as Jesus says that, he's going to pounce because he's got all of these arguments that have been given to him. Because according to his tradition, his upbringing, the prevailing Jewish assumption in his day is that not everybody is your neighbor. No, no, no. There's the righteous and there's the unrighteous. There's the godly and the ungodly. There's the insider, there's the outsider. And if you're one of the righteous, godly insiders, we gotta be very careful with who we treat as our neighbor. We gotta be very careful because if you take an ungodly person and treat them kindly and share a meal with them, you could be sending them the wrong message. They could be mistaking your kindness and your generosity for approval of their lifestyle. You could be aiding and abetting sin. You could be causing sin to flourish. So we need to be very careful and very economical and very conservative with who we define as our neighbor. And so this man's ready to pounce on Jesus because he thinks he knows how Jesus is going to respond. Instead, Jesus does something totally different, something altogether brilliant. By the way, just as a side note, never get into a public debate with Jesus. He's merciful, but you will end up looking like a fool. And it's now in this context that Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what I want to do for the next minute or two is I want to tell you this parable, but I want to do it with a modern adaptation. Because if I tell this parable as it is, as the parable of the Good Samaritan, it lo- for you, it loses its edge. It loses its punch. Because the only Samaritans you have ever heard about are good. You've never heard about bad Samaritans. Like, like Samaritan and good have become synonymous. If you're walking down the road and somebody says, you're a Samaritan, you would say, right on. Thank you. Amen. So I'm not going to tell you the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going, to, I'm going to put a modern twist on it. Just because I want you to feel the edginess of it. And because the ancient conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans is eerily similar to the modern day conflict not not only in its nature, but even in its geography, the modern-day conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. This evening, I want to tell you the parable of the good Palestinian. 
Do you feel the tension rise in the room? That's what I want. I, I want. I want there to be some edge to this. I probably could have made it even edgier, but I think this will keep me employed here. The good Palestinian parable goes like this. There's a young Jewish man living in the modern city of Jericho who's got a meeting downtown in modern Jerusalem, about 17 miles away. And he gets in his car and he begins driving down the highway between Jericho and Jerusalem. I've, I've been down that highway. But along the way, he gets carjacked. And he's beaten and bloodied. He's robbed. And they, they take his car and drive off with it. And they leave him just bludgeoned on the, the shoulder of the highway. A couple minutes later, a Jewish rabbi is driving down the highway and he sees his fellow Jewish man laying half dead on the side of the road. And, and there's a part of him that, that empathizes and, and wants to help him. Um, and, and then he thinks better of it and he thinks, no, this could be a setup. This could be a trap. It's too risky. And so he keeps driving. A couple minutes later, a Jewish yeshiva student, that is a Jewish theological student, is driving down the highway. He's got a class to get to at the university there in Jerusalem. And he looks over and he sees this, this man lying on the shoulder of the highway. And he says, oh man, I got a class, I don't wanna be late. And so he passes by, he thinks somebody else will take care of him. And then a couple minutes later, a Palestinian Muslim is driving down the highway. And he sees this Israeli Jew laying on the shoulder bleeding out of his mouth. And the Palestinian Muslim pulls over his car, gets out of it and walks over to this Israeli man, administers first aid, then he takes him and he escorts him into the, the back seat of his beat up old Toyota. And then he drives him to the nearest hospital in Jerusalem to make sure that he gets the proper care that he needs. And after he's admitted into the emergency room, the Palestinian goes to the billing office of the hospital and he, he, he makes an arrangement and he says, I want to make sure that every one of his medical charges gets billed to me. I'm going to take care of all of his needs. Now you see, this is, um, this is the parable Jesus tells. Probably with 10 times more controversy than what you're feeling right now. And I want to try to help you to see what Jesus is doing. Because what Jesus is not doing, he's not telling us a story about one of us helping one of them. That's what the lawyer's expecting. He's expecting Jesus to tell him, you need to love everybody, love your enemies, and treat everybody as your neighbor. And this lawyer, is, he's so ready to explain to Jesus, Jesus, here's why you're wrong. You're being naive. You're being irresponsible. But he doesn't give a story about an Israeli loving a Palestinian. Jesus flips it. And he gives a story about one of them loving one of us. The lawyer says, I know what this Jesus is going to do. He's going to tell me to love my enemy. And Jesus doesn't tell that story. He tells a story about an enemy loving him. And now he's got this whole briefcase of arguments that he's got to toss out. 
See, if you read this parable right, and it's hard to read it right, but if you read it right, lurking underneath the surface is this question. How are you going to respond when your enemy takes the initiative and acts lovingly and mercifully and kindly and treats you as his neighbor? It's really subversive and brilliant what Jesus does. He flips the whole thing. He's saying, okay, fine. You don't want to love your enemy. You don't want to be a neighbor to your enemy. That's fine. But how are you going to react when your enemy loves you and treats you as their neighbor? See, he takes the trap and he puts it right back on the lawyer. And then he clenches it with a question, the final question. It's a very rabbinic practice to, to teach people by asking questions. And so he ends it with a question. He says, you tell me, which of these three individuals was a neighbor, was a good neighbor towards the man? The Jewish rabbi, the Jewish yeshiva student, or the Palestinian Muslim? And at this point, the lawyer has no other option but to answer it honestly. And he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, now you go and do likewise. Now remember this whole story is told as, an, as a response to a question about how to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, this is the life I want to produce in you now that will last through the age to come. It'll go on for eternity. But let's talk about how to enter into it right now. He says, Jesus, what must I do to participate in the age to come? To, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law say? That's where I'm going to say, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus is going to say, that's absolutely right. Do this and you will live. And that's when I say, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? And now I've got my defenses up and I'm ready to tell Jesus why I shouldn't love Romans, why I shouldn't love Samaritans and Gentiles and Palestinians. So Jesus flips it, and he says, yeah, well, what are you going to do when that Palestinian loves you? Which one's fulfilling the law now? Who's being a good neighbor now? The one who showed mercy. Then go and do likewise. In other words, Mr. Jewish Bible scholar, if you're so convinced that you're part of the true people of God, then be careful that you're not outdone by those folks who you're so convinced have no knowledge of God whatsoever. What Jesus is essentially telling the man is this. I'm, I'm, I've given you a way to imagine your enemy acting lovingly and mercifully and kindly towards you, and you know that that's good. You cannot deny it. So if you are a person of God, then cooperate with what God wants to do through you and go and act that way towards people who think that you are their enemy. Mm. So let me ask you a question. This is Rabbi Ryan now. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Christianity is a superior revelation of God's love than what we find in Islam? You can answer. That's not a trick question. The answer ought to be yes, by the way. Otherwise, you should become a Muslim. All right? In fact, let me ask the question in a, in a better, more clear way. 
I'm going to invite you to respond again, and then I'm going to make a follow-up statement. Okay? Do you believe that in Jesus Christ, we find a superior revelation of God's love and character than in what we find in Muhammad in Islam? Much more confidence that time. Then, then go out and prove it in the way that you love and show mercy and kindness and live neighborly towards every Muslim you meet. Otherwise, shut up. <laughs> because the point of this thing is not my religious founder can beat up your religious founder. If you believe that in Christ we find a superior revelation of God's love than what we find in Muhammad, go out and prove it by living lovingly and mercifully towards every Muslim you meet. Otherwise, do us all a favor and, and shut up because all you're doing is sounding like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Amen? Hallelujah. I'm saying it as bluntly as I can because I think this is, this is so much hangs on this. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we prove it in how we love our neighbors. That's what John says in his first epistle. He says, how can you say you love God who you don't even see and fail to love your neighbor who you can see? He says, if, if, if that's your claim, you're a liar, he says, and the truth is not in you. Love for God, love of neighbor is inextricably connected. And by the way, for Jesus, he redefines neighbor to include your enemies. Every person on this planet is your neighbor. So I've said it before, the biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. The biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. Because without loving our neighbor, if we're not on the trajectory of growing, I'm not saying it's an overnight thing. I'm not saying you're there yet, but we've got to be on the trajectory. And if it's not proven, if we're not in that trajectory of growing in our love for neighbors, without loving our neighbors, love for God just becomes abstract. We end up just kind of loving our idea of God. And if we're not careful, pretty soon our idea of God starts to look suspiciously like us. So it's not really, in the name of loving God, what we're actually doing is just love, we're just loving ourselves. And if we're not living in love towards our neighbors consistently, indiscriminately, no matter who that person is, if we're only, in other words, if we're only loving those who look like us, think like us, and agree with us on every conceivable theological and political issue, then it's not really our neighbor that we're loving. We're loving whatever reflects ourselves back to us. If you only love those who you agree with, it's not love at all. So the point is this. I don't prove my devotion to Jesus by how much hostility I can hold against those Muslims or those liberals, those demoncrats, or those conservatives for that matter. I'm saying democrats, that's not me, I'm, I'm, caric I'm caricaturing a person, I don't think that way. But I don't prove my devotion to Jesus by how, how much I'm ready to put the hammer down on those people who, are, who I see as enemies of Christianity. 
I prove my devotion to Jesus by how I love and have mercy on everyone. I prove my devotion to Jesus by calling my enemy my neighbor. Amen. Now let's go and do likewise. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.